Acts chapter 6. In the Red Bibles, it should be on page 971. Uh, we're getting back into our Acts series uh, for the next several weeks. And uh, this sermon is tentatively titled, Don't Sleep on the Widows. Uh, listen to your widows is what we're talking about this morning. So Acts 6, 1 through 7. Hear these words from Luke. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And a bunch of these names I'm going to butcher, so just be prepared. Uh, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's just take a moment to take a deep breath in and out, invite the Spirit of God, our Father, to speak to us, and then I'll pray for us as we get into our time here. God, our Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. You speak to us by your spirit, and you teach us what it means to live the way of Jesus. God, help us. We need help when it comes to complex issues of um, justice and organizational systems and the complex realities that we face. It's sometimes hard to know how to do the right thing. And so, God, we just pray that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to see this pattern here as something enduring and something that you're inviting us to live out in, uh, in this time. And so, God, we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been a part of something that's grown very quickly? In the business world, uh, when you are trying to acquire a company, one of our elders uh, buys companies, one of the things that you're looking for, apparently, is what's called hockey stick growth. Let me just throw a picture up on the screen. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a company that's growing at hockey stick growth uh, with those kind of metrics, a company, maybe a nonprofit, a church plant, or um, this is actually what it looked like to be a part of my family from 2000 and uh, like five or six into 2011. We had four kids in five years. It felt like hockey stick family growth. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been a part of that. Maybe you started like a t-shirt company. It's grown like that. I mean, just, you know, just hypothetically, just different examples of that. Uh, in our congregation, we've experienced kind of rapid growth. And here's the interesting thing. In the West, we tend to equate growth, especially rapid growth, with success and with blessing and with health, right? Anything good and healthy grows really quickly. Um, and, and we have this mantra that is kind of implicit in the way that we approach life oftentimes. Big, bigger, better, faster, stronger is good. What's interesting about that is that recent research has shown that fast growth 
counterintuitively, can actually be disastrous for companies. And if you've ever lived through that and you've been on the executive team or you've been a manager, you know that to be true, right? Um, Inc. Magazine recently did a study. They put out a list of the 5,000 fastest growing companies every year. And they did a, a study a couple years ago. And they found that after five to eight years, after companies made it onto their list, two-thirds of those companies had gotten smaller, been disadvantageously sold, or failed and completely collapsed. One of the more famous examples, uh, I'm sure none of you have ever heard of this. I, I wasn't familiar with it. It's a tech company called Fuhu. Uh, Fuhu, uh, I have a picture up here of uh, the profile that Inc. Magazine did on them. Uh, they started in 2008, software company. Uh, they started uh, writing software, code. They, they began to then trick out um, Android tablets, and then they created kids' digital media tablets. And they grew from 2008 to 2013 from zero to $196 million. And they were just on this meteoric rise. And they got to the point where they actually struck up a deal, a partnership with DreamWorks. And then everything kind of collapsed overnight. Their batteries caught fire. And they had a class action lawsuit uh, taken out against them. And the company literally like dissolved and disappeared overnight. Um, Ichak Adize, who's a management consultant, he calls this, he said this is actually very common, he calls this the founder's trap. When a, when a company started and it grows really quickly and then the company kind of outstrips the founder's vision, who's often a visionary or a product developer, it kind of outstrips their ability to manage it well and then the systems and the processes begin to overwhelm them. And then at about year seven or eight, there either has to be a pivot in the company where they bring in managers and processor type oriented people or in about 80% of cases, founders get forced out or fired by their boards and they bring in new management. So this is like a whole phenomena, right? And if you've ever lived through something like that, you know that there is a shadow side to growth. Growth is not always good, especially fast growth can be damaging and even harmful. And that's kind of what we see here in the early church in Acts, it was growing almost like a Silicon Valley startup, right? And again, not because of some, you know, brilliant branding strategy. There was no, like, marketing campaigns or product development efforts. Really, the Holy Spirit was just doing a powerful work in this community. Thousands of people joined this movement in the early months and years. And there's this refrain that you see repeated throughout the book of Acts, especially in the early chapters, the Lord added to their numbers daily. And it's important. The Lord added. They were not just like engineering this. The Lord was doing something among them that was powerful and it was growing um, just really rapidly. Now, growth can be good, right? Growth brings strength. Growth brings credibility. Growth can bring stability to a fledgling organization or a fledgling movement. But there were also all kinds of unintended consequences, and challenges that they had to contend with. You can imagine, I mean, imagine the pressure of being one of the 12 who were overseeing the leadership structures and the organizational systems, uh, being one of the apostles, right? At the end of chapter four, a couple weeks ago, we saw that this, this is the story we love, right? Like there's this organic growth of the church and everybody's selling real estate and they're pooling the resources together and there's this beautiful solidarity. They're one heart and one mind. And all the people who had needs were being, had, had their needs taken care of, right? We, we love those kinds of stories. And apparently by chapter 6, what was organic in chapter 4, now about six years later, most scholars think, has uh, kind of matured into a more structured and complex social program. And they called this social program the daily distribution. The daily distribution was how it was managed by the apostles 
And it was a form of charity where they were taking care of the needs of the vulnerable in their community. And, and again, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, this kind of charity was radical and new in the, in the Roman Empire because charity in the Roman Empire had happened, but it tended to happen within a class or within a status group, not not like vertically. So it happened horizontally within people in your status group, but it was never something that crossed status boundaries or uh, like vertical economic boundaries or ethnic and racial boundaries. And so this pattern that we see in Acts 6 becomes the model for the church in the first several centuries and would actually play a significant factor in a lot of the conversions of the empire. People were so stunned by the kind of generosity of the community that they begin to explore Christianity and come into the faith. We see that here at the end of this passage. But the core issue that the growth caused um, was really kind of multifaceted, right? Like everyone loves the vision of starting something, but we forget like how complicated it is not just to start something, like some of you are entrepreneurs and you like to start things. How many of you though like hate to sustain things? Like it's hard to Easy to, I'd actually argue it's really easy to start something. It's really hard to sustain it and keep with it. Um, and, and, and really the key issue is not just can you sustain it, can you make sure that the systems work equi- equitably for everyone involved? Especially there's this uh, concept in the nonprofit world of, of the beneficiaries, right? Like who are the beneficiaries? Who are the ones that are supposed to be benefiting from your products and services? And are they experiencing equity and equality in the ways that those services are being Delivered, And that's what happens here, essentially, is the growth had obscured, as, as growth often does, a systemic failure in the distribution process. The Hellenistic widows were being neglected. The vulnerable were being neglected in the community in the daily distribution of food. Now, to be clear, this was not an intentional act of oppression or injustice, but the impact was the same, right? Like you cannot intend to do something and the impact is still bad, right? It's not always about your intent. It's about what is the impact on marginalized communities, right? And so the impact, the felt impact in the community we see is social injustice, right? This is one of the first cases of social justice that the church has to deal with in its early years. We see social injustice. We see relational division between groups of people. And we see, most importantly, missional distraction, right? The, the possibility of the church getting off mission, all happening here in chapter 6. And there's, there's really two issues that we need to kind of pay attention to here in terms of applying this to our time right now. Two issues that I want us to see. There is two, two causes or two correlates to what's happening here in this community. One is institutional issues, and the other are cultural issues, institutional issues and cultural issues. So I want to talk about each one of these. I think it's important that we pay attention because I think we still deal with these things today, right? First, let's look at the institutional issues. I kind of mentioned this. Growth meant that uh, the, the, the growth of the community kind of outpaces the structures and the leadership capacity, and it creates these systemic, logistical, administrative, institutional issues that have to be addressed, right? And, th- and this really is a kind of a justice issue when it comes to how this food's being distributed. And, and, and this is more than just a, a charity thing, right? This is a justice issue. And there's a difference between charity and justice. I, I want to illustrate this with a, with a story that if you're in the educational world, you've probably heard this uh, shared before, or like a hospital system. We talk about upstream issues a lot. But I want to share this. It's, it's, uh, it's really well known. Uh, two people, uh, sociologists, put this together a while back. It's called The Parable of the Babies in the River. 
Let me just read you a version of it. It goes like this. A group of campers were on a riverbank, and they were just settling down for the evening when one of them sees a baby floating down the river. He immediately dives in, braving the fierce current, and rescues the infant. But as he climbs ashore, one of the other campers spots another baby in the river in need of help. Then another, and then another. Overwhelmed by the sheer number of babies, the campers grab any passerby they can to help them. Before long, the river is filled with desperate babies, and more and more rescuers are required to assist the campers. Unfortunately, not all of the babies can be saved. And tragically, some of the brave rescuers occasionally drown. But they manage to mold themselves into an efficient, life-saving organization. And over time, an entire infrastructure develops to support their efforts. Hospitals, schools, foster care systems, social services, trauma and victim support services, life-saving trainers, swimming schools, and all kinds of other institutions begin to pop up. At this point, one of the rescuers takes a step back, and they begin to walk upstream. Where are you going? The others ask, disconcerted. We need you here. Look how busy we are. We don't have time to be taking off upstream. And the rescuer replies, you guys carry on here. I'm going to go upstream and tackle the idiot who keeps chucking all these babies in the river. That's the difference. Like Charity takes care of what's happening in the moment Justice steps back and says there's a larger structural issue here that needs to be addressed. Why do we continue to have one group of people experiencing being slighted and over, like the the Hebraic Jewish widows are having their needs met, but on a consistent basis, not intentionally, but again, result is the same. One group of people is being slighted and neglected. That is where we begin to see the need for systemic and structural and institutional redress. That's the first issue. The second issue is the cultural issue, right? And this is not just an institutional issue. It's a, it's a cultural issue. There were these subtle cultural tensions at play that it's easy to miss if you don't understand the cultural dynamics in verse 1. Again, just to reread this, in those days, as the disciples were increasing, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution here. So we have two subcultures here, right? And what's at stake is nothing less than how the church is going to treat the most vulnerable among them. And you have to understand these two cultural realities to understand what's happening. The, the Hellenistic Jews, you had essentially one broader ethnic racial group of Jews, right? Uh, ethnic, we would call that racial, but it's ethnic. Um, and, and again, as with any cultural group, we often, uh, we often assume like a monolith, but they're very diverse. There's a spectrum of different subcultures that exist with any group of people that you can't just simplistically reduce down to categories of black or white or African or Asian or whatever. Uh, And that's the same thing. Two of these groups, the most prominent ones, were the Hellenist and the Hebraic Jews. Hellenist Jews were diaspora Jews. That means that they had been historically scattered throughout the Greco-Roman Empire because of multiple generations of exile going all the way back to the 6th century B.C., There were wars and oftentimes forced subjugations, right, under Alexander the Great and some of the big conquests of uh, Greece and Rome. And so the Hellenistic Jews, they grew up outside of Jerusalem. They were immersed in Greek culture, right, Greek art and Greek literature and Greek language. You could say that Greek was their heart language. They spoke Greek. They wrote in Greek. They thought in Greek. They dreamed, I guess they dreamt in Greek. uh, They acted Greek. And they worshiped, we see later uh, in chapters 6 and 7, They actually had their own temples, the Freedmen Temples, 
where they worship in their own language in Greek with a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures called the Septuagint, which was their Bible. And they also were more cosmopolitan than kind of their more rural uh, Hebraic neighbors. And, and, and it's important to know the Hellenistic Jews were the cultural minorities, right? The Hebraic Jews were the cultural majorities. The Hellenistic Jews were the cultural minorities. And then on the other hand, you have the Hebraic Jews. They were born and raised in Palestinian Jerusalem, and they spoke Aramaic, which is kind of a form of Hebrew. And there was this kind of tension between these two groups, right? The, the Hebraic Jews believed themselves to be better than the Hellenistic Jews. They thought they were the purists, and so they viewed the Hellenists with suspicion. Uh, they kind of viewed them as like compromisers who had kind of compromised by taking up some practices of uh, Greece and Rome. And so what's interesting about that is just like in any diaspora grouping, um, the, the truth was that many of the Hellenistic Jews were very substantive and robust in their practice of their faith. I mean, if you are a minority having to exist in a larger majority culture, it forces you to actually be more, convic more convicted in some ways in your faith than a person who is the dominant culture living in a dominant culture situation. To survive diaspora life in Greco-Roman rule and under that propaganda machine, like you had to be legit. And so oftentimes the Hellenists were just as robust as the Hebrews, but there was tension between these two groups. And so what you see here in chapter, in verse one, is this pattern of socialization among the Hebraic Jews, where again, not intentionally, but unintentionally, in ways that they were blinded to, they are taking care of their own cultural subgroup at the expense of the needs of the other Hellenistic Jews. So what we learn here is fascinating, and it's the same thing we see today, that underneath institutional and structural issues are often issues of culture and race and other kinds of cultural issues. Gender, season of life, right? Like all kinds of issues hide underneath institutional issues. And so we need to pay attention to those institutional and cultural issues because here's the thing. We often want to just blame the individual. They're incompetent. They're this, they're that. But those kinds of questions that arise when a group of people or an individual is not flourishing in a larger system, those issues function as a mirror and they tell us as much about culture and society and our organizations as they do about the individual who might be experiencing that particular pain point. And so we need to be pay, paying attention to those things and seeing them not just as institutional or administrative, but also as cultural realities. That's one part of the cultural issue. The other part of the cultural issue, why this is so significant, had to do with the fact that they were widows, right? You have to understand the larger biblical narrative around widows if you are to understand how important it was for them to resolve this issue in the community, right? When diaspora Jews would uh, reach old age or retirement age, they would often relocate to Jerusalem so that they could die and be buried in the Holy Land. And that's hard for us to understand because we don't have a value as much in America on place and how place plays into your identity. But if you come from a traditional culture or an immigrant family or a refugee family, you know how much place and soil and land plays into your sense of identity and belonging and your story. And so in a patriarchal society like ancient Jerusalem, women had to depend on men for their support. And so when husbands would die, they moved back to the Holy Land, a husband would die, a Jewish widow found themselves in very vulnerable, like economically vulnerable situations, right? And so understanding these kinds of vulnerabilities is really, uh, it's beautiful to see the way that God takes that into account. 
like God who architected the Old Testament law system, the legal system, the judicial system, the social system, God knowing these vulnerabilities of his own patriarchal society design, he architects and builds into that social system a designation for the widow, a designation for not just the widow, a special legal status actually, not just for the widow, but for this entire, what one scholar has called, quartet of the vulnerable, right? And you see this, this group, they're always mentioned together in the Old Testament. The quartet of the vulnerable are the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the refugee. Okay, let's say that together. The widow, the orphan, the poor, and the refugee. These are people that are close to the heart of God, and they were guaranteed under Jewish law, under Mosaic law, under Torah, they were guaranteed certain benefits and protections. Particularly widows were guaranteed food and housing and, you know, relational support. And um, by this time, they actually were allowed to continue to draw on the income of their uh, dead husbands and, and remain in their houses in perpetuity and t- unless they decided to remarry. And so what we see in, the, in the, the Judaistic law is the importance of God's heart for the widow, prioritizing the vulnerable. The law and the prophets talk about this so much. They actually evaluated the health of a society. So you want to know, what does it look like to be a part of a healthy society, a healthy community? How do you evaluate health as a community? If you read the Old Testament, one of the inescapable conclusions, if you just read it and you take your political blinders off, you take your economic assumptions off the table, just read the text, read Isaiah, read Jeremiah, read the law, Deuteronomy and Exodus in particular, you will see that they evaluated the health of a society based on how the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the refugee were treated. If those people at the bottom of the social hierarchy are flourishing, then you have a just and flourishing society. If they weren't, it didn't matter how religious you claimed to be. It didn't matter how fast your church was growing, how many Bible studies you were a part of. If those people were not flourishing, God calls it out and he says, this is wrong, this is unjust, you're going into exile. Exodus, just some examples, Exodus 22. The Mosaic law, you must not exploit a foreign resident or oppress him. Why? Since you yourselves were foreigners in the land of Egypt. You must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will no doubt cry to me, the Lord says, and I will hear their cry. Psalm 68.5 says it beautifully. God in his holy dwelling is a father of the fatherless and a champion of widows. He's an advocate. He's an ally. He is the champion of widows. Isaiah 1, 17. Learn to do what is good. Seek justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Nicholas Wolterstorff, in his book on uh, liturgy and justice, says this, the writers of the Old Testament speak often about justice. One of the most striking features of their talk about justice is that the presence or absence of justice in society is regularly connected with the fate of the widows, the orphans, the aliens, and the poor. This is so hard for us to grab onto. It's such a different framework than how we often think about and engage with widows today. Um, One author calls uh, modern widows the forgotten society. There was a, a man, this guy, who uh, wrote, uh, actually put together a sketchbook of visual illustrations. I wanted to show you this picture that he did. He actually went into nursing homes, into assisted living facilities. Professionally, as a sketch artist, he was an impressionist. And he would go into vulnerable communities, and he would try to humanize and bring their cause into the public fray by just sketching out pictures of these beautiful people who oftentimes were trapped behind walls and completely forgotten by their families, by society, 
by even the church, if we're honest. And so he, he illustrates, there's a bunch of these that he illustrates of people that he calls part of this forgotten society who live oftentimes in poverty, who live in abject loneliness and isolation, homelessness, right? Like, think about all the nursing home deaths. I think we're approaching 200,000-plus COVID deaths in nursing homes and assisted facilities. Like, these are our family members. These are our aunts, our uncles, our grandparents who are languishing oftentimes. My uncle was a, was a nursing home director. And you just hear story after story of how folks are just so forgotten. One of the uh, most, I mean, just like in-your-face examples of this and next picture is a photo from this city. I don't know I'm going to butcher it, um, but it's Var- Varanasi. Uh, it's in northern India. It's actually called the City of Widows. 38,000-plus widows live in this city. They often come when their husbands die because there's no social safety net. They've gathered together and created their own alternative community of widows to support one another. This is just a picture of one small part of this forgotten segment of society. Just let that sink in for a second. These widows were facing the same kind of threats, right? Especially if you converted from Judaism where you had the social safety net to Christianity where now all of a sudden you had no social safety net, their health and their well-being were put at risk. And that's why, you ever read the New Testament, you're like, why are these all these like really specific policies about enrolling widows and discerning between who's a widow and who's not? That's why, because they had so many widows they had to care for that they had to be able to say, this is a widow and this is not, and here's how we take care of them, right? Like some of us, we don't like policy until we need policy. And then like you learn to love policy when you begin to realize people are being overlooked and mistreated because of bad policy, right? And so That's what God is doing here. From the very beginning, Luke wants us to remember that these people are are just the center of God's heart. Right? Right from the very beginning of the church, God still loves the vulnerable. He still cares for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the fatherless. These are God's people, and he will provide for them. So I want us to just kind of look. So that's the problem. And I want us just to look quickly here at the solution, because it's really brilliant the way that the Holy Spirit moves in this community. And I want to just reread this to you because, again, just set aside your cultural blinders if you can. Set aside your assumptions about, you know, um, how we deal with justice issues. And I just want to read the text. So don't hear me saying something that I'm not. Just listen to the text. It's, it's brilliant and it's radical and it's countercultural in every way. But just listen to what they did. The 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples. And they said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose these seven men. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The first thing that I want us to not miss or just run past is that they listened to the widows. They listened to the vulnerable. The first thing we see the apostles doing is listening to these complaints. Don't underestimate how radical this would have been in this society at this time to listen to these marginalized groups, to actually hear them. In the Bible, there's a difference between just hearing something and and truly listening. To listen in the Bible, to hear in the Hebrew and the Greek means to not only listen, but to internalize and then to obey. That's what we see happening here, right? And think about this. I mean, just think for a second. These apostles, they're men and they're leaders in the church. 
They have been given all authority and power by Jesus and tasked with speaking on behalf of God. Think about the stewardship of authority and power that they have. They could use that any way they choose, and yet notice what they don't do. They don't drown out the voices of the vulnerable with sermons. They don't preach at them. They don't write a bunch of white papers and give their position on something, their doctrinal position on something. They don't write op-eds or blogs defending their system and trying to set aside these legitimate concerns. They don't demonize or blame the victims, saying, well, it's just their fault. You know, they just, they're incompetent or they're lazy or they're stupid or they don't have their stuff together. They don't try to placate them with behind-the-scenes political negotiations. I mean, these would be the expected tactics for how you were as a leader expected to act in that time in Rome. And I would argue it's still how we're expected to act now, oftentimes in the marketplace and in our own institutions. But they listen. They, 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 they take them seriously. And I would argue by taking them seriously, they're actually taking God seriously. Because in the Bible, to hear the voice of the widow, to hear the voice of the poor, to hear the voice of the orphan is to hear God's voice. Matthew 25, when you did this to the least of these, you did this to me. And then there's all those people that are surprised because God says, well, you didn't do this. And like, what? When, when didn't we do this? When you didn't listen and you didn't respond to their cries, you didn't listen to me. That's terrifying. They listened to them. They didn't try to defend themselves. They listened with a non-judgmental, non-coercive, non-anxious presence. And I would argue that anytime we're dealing with issues of justice, anytime we're dealing with marginalized and vulnerable people in our missional communities, our discipleship groups, our companies, our families, even thinking about our own children and grandchildren, right? These are all vulnerable populations. Listening is the first step in building trust. Because when I listen to you and I look you in the eye and I treat you like a human being, not a project to be fixed, not a nuisance, not just somebody bringing a grievance, not, not trying to protect myself, when I sit down and I open up my ears and I open up my heart and my mind to what you have to say and I treat you like a human being. I mean, how empowering is that, right? Like if you've ever been in a situation where you are vulnerable and the person with power sits down and they, they listen to you, it's life-changing for some of us who've never been listened to. It, it builds trust. It, it helps people feel seen. It helps them feel safe. It helps them feel valued. It honors their humanity, right? This is what one author calls reverse listening. Like he says, man, imagine what it would be like to be a part of a church community where we engage in reverse listening. Reverse listening is where those who have power, like the dynamics of speaking and listening, are inverted. And those who are supposed to speak are the ones who listen, and those who are supposed to listen are the ones who have the opportunity to speak. I would argue if we're going to be a church community that values the presence and the voices of multiple cultures, and I, I mean that in every way, racially, gender, economic, generational, right? Like multiple cultures is not just about race, although that's a part of it. If we're going to truly value the voices and the presence of multiple cultures here, we must double down on listening, we do a lot of talking, and I'm paid to talk, right? Like, I, I mean, that's my job to speak, and yet we must learn to listen. And this is especially critical during seasons of growth or seasons of transition, right? Because when we're growing or we're transitioning and we've experienced all this and we're in a season with COVID of constant transition, the, the, there's a temptation to not listen to the vulnerable, right? Because we're, we're tired, we're exhausted, we're stressed out, we're focused on efficiency 
And oftentimes, those kind of values can lead us away from listening to the vulnerable rather than listening to. And here's the thing. Nothing good happens when we speed, when we get sped up, when we're in a hurry. Like, cross-cultural health takes time. It it involves slowing down to listen and make sure that all the voices are being heard. So I just want to throw up a couple of questions for those of you who might find yourself, and I think all of us in different ways have communities that we're a part of. It could just be your family. It could be your neighborhood. Where, where you find yourself in a position of leadership and you find these kinds of complaints and requests or maybe will in the future find these kinds of complaints, complaints and requests bubbling up to the surface. And I just want us to ask some of these questions uh, of ourselves that I think we have to wrestle with when it comes to the vulnerable. Who are the vulnerable among us that, that who, whose flourishing might be put at risk because of our leadership decisions? The pace of our leadership the processes that we're uh, implementing or the practices or the preferences of our cultural group even over and against their cultural group, right? We, as those who have power in an institution or any kind of system, we must wrestle with that stewardship. We don't get to just say, well, it's not my problem, okay? What, who are the vulnerable among us? Like in this moment, we have the economically vulnerable, right? People are talking about a K-shaped economic recovery. Some are up and to the right, some are going down and to the right, right? Like we have economically vulnerable. We have culturally and ethnically vulnerable folks. We have refugee children living in our homes right now, right, that are vulnerable in so many different ways. We have the physiologically and medically vulnerable, right? Like how many of our decisions about whether to do this or embrace this restriction or not are being driven by the strong rather than the weak? And, And we have folks in our congregation in and out of the hospital right now who are depending on us to make wise decisions so they can engage in community in healthy ways. But do we see those people? Are we listening, or are we just falling into the political polarization that's characterizing this moment? That stuff doesn't go away for them. Like, this is the rest of their life. My father-in-law is immunocompromised. This is the rest of his life. When Emily and I were, uh, well, let me just ask these other questions. What assumptions are we making that might be incomplete? What perspectives might we be missing and what values or practices driving the problem might actually keep us from resolving the problem? Emily and I were with our kids a couple of weeks ago um, at a nursing home over here. One of our families has a a member of their family permanently in this uh, assisted living facility. And so we all went went a couple of times and we just went to sing songs and try to just bring love and, and cheer to the folks in this uh, just beautiful image bearers, right? And, and we get in there and we're singing and it's just such a just a heart, like, inspiring opportunity just to, to sing and share scripture together and play games. And after we were done uh, at one of these, uh, a lady who was a Christian who was a widow came up to Emily, and she just said, hey, I just have, like, a small request. It's, like, a really big request for me. She said, I haven't been able to take communion since COVID started. Would your church be willing to just come? I mean, a cracker and juice we take for granted every week when we come and we gather and we celebrate and we take communion. And yet, here's a widow just saying, hey, here's a practical way that you could just listen and empower is just to come and to serve communion. And to think about the thousands of little acts of mercy and compassion that we have opportunities to address every day like that if we're listening. And it just like moves you to tears when you begin to really think about how overlooked some of these folks are. So we have this invitation to listen. And then secondly, and just lastly here, we have uh, not just the listening to the vulnerable, but the empowering of the vulnerable. The empowerment empowerment of the vulnerable. I want you to see how they resolve these issues by sharing power 
And by giving away power to those who were experiencing the pain of this system, they actually gave them the ability to reform the system without paternalistically standing over their shoulders, telling them what they could or couldn't do, right? They just simply hand over power and authority to this group um, and, and, and instead of hoarding power, right? Believing that if they empower this group, the possibilities for flourishing would be multiplied rather than diminished if they created space for these image bearers to use their God-given capacity for power creatively and redemptively. Now, I'm just going to list these off because we don't have time. We're out of time. I'm going to keep this short today. But just I want you to notice a few things about how they selected these leaders because I think there's a, there's a lot in here for us to wrestle with. Okay, first thing. Um, the leaders were chosen on the basis of two criteria, spiritual maturity and cultural sensitivity. And we need both of those things together, right? When we think about doing the work of justice, justice is so complex. Dealing with these kind of institutional and cultural issues, if you've ever stepped into this and tried to do it, I mean, COVID's been a great example. It doesn't matter what you do, half of the world is mad at you, right? Like, and that's how it feels when you're engaged in this kind of work. And so it requires, notice, people that are full of the Holy Spirit, who have the wisdom of God, the spiritual maturity, and the character. So we want to look beyond just what's been called tokenism or symbolic representation and say, is this person mature, right? Because the most dangerous thing you can do when you're doing cross-cultural work is to empower immaturity. The goal of, of you know, reconciliation or multi-ethnic work or multicultural work is not just diversity and inclusion. The goal is wholeness. The goal is maturity, right? We want to be built up into the maturity of Christ. And so we need to be careful that we don't just empower immaturity just for the sake of, of trying to speed up the work. On the other hand, we need to be culturally sensitive and ethnically sensitive in how we appoint leaders, right? They knew that just adding more Hebraic Jews, regardless of their, community, of their maturity, was not going to solve the problem. They kept adding those people, and they kept having the same problems. And so we need to remember that when culture is at play, and that's the problem, that the solution is also going to be cultural, right? And so we need to make sure that we are amplifying voices and bodies from the, from the vulnerable group so that there's credibility in the solution. And notice that they don't try to make it equal. There's over-representation. All seven names here that are chosen are all Greek names. It doesn't come out in uh, the English translation, but they're all from the vulnerable population. They're over-represented in the solution, not even equally represented. So again, I'm not making any statements, just saying this is what we see here, and it's something for us to wrestle with. Second thing, we see that these leaders are given real power, real authority, and real responsibility. Again, they're not just given symbolic responsibility. This becomes the pattern for the diaconate. These people are empowered to lead and serve in the church, and we see that, um, lastly, that the gospel begins to be unleashed and the movement goes forward. As more leaders step up and embrace their calling, we see that there's this bottleneck is opened up and the church begins to grow and the gospel moves forward. And so um, we are in a similar season where I think we are needing more leaders. Like this year, our elders are wanting to see more deacons step up, more people joining committees as we engage in the work of justice, as we get out in the community and we share the gospel. We, we need people who are empowered and gifted by the Holy Spirit to step in and begin to serve. And we're going to be doing some of that later in 2022, the summer into the fall. And so maybe begin to pray about right now, how might God be stirring up in me uh, a desire to serve and uh, to step up and be trained so that we can see the flourishing of our church. So with that being said, I want to close this out and I want to take us to communion. And I just want us to close by, again, coming back to verse 7 
and just seeing the result of this. When, when pastoral work, preaching the gospel, preaching the word, comes together with justice work, making sure that all things are being done equally and with fairness, notice what happens. The word of God spread, and the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. We need both of these things happening, right? Both are the same word for deacon, service, ministry is used of pastor, the pastoral work and the justice work. We need both of those working together, everyone playing their part, if we're going to see the kind of credibility and impact of the gospel moving forward in our community. When people begin to notice that these things are happening, that there's justice, that there's true love, that people are being taken care of in the way that God has designed for that to happen, we see the gospel grow and move and spread. And so I want us just to go to communion, just kind of asking those questions of ourselves and, and asking God what his invitation might be for us in this moment. Who are the vulnerable among us, right? What is God doing in our body in this time? What are some of the unique opportunities that we have right now, new vulnerabilities that have even popped up in the last couple of years that weren't here, here a couple of years ago? I want you to think, think about your family. I want you to think about your missional community. I want you to think about your discipleship group. I want you to think about your workplace. How might God be inviting you to embody his heart for the poor, the widow, the vulnerable, and to be a part of building new systems and new structures and new solutions that help empower those at-risk communities in the name of Jesus? Let me pray for us. Father, we just thank you that you uh, show us here an example of what it looks like to live out your calling to be a people of justice, to be a people of mercy, to be people who listen to our widows, who listen to our vulnerable and who see in their voices, who hear in their voices, and see in their bodies you, Jesus, coming to us, inviting us to respond. And so, God, I pray that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, continue to multiply the good work that's already being done here in our community, and would you raise up just more champions of the vulnerable in our community. Help us to reflect you in that way. And God, may you use what your Spirit's doing among us to spread the gospel in our community in a more profound way that we never ask or imagine or think. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.